my mom would be upset. If you were here last week, um, we, 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 we kind of talked about everything we've been talking about for the first six months of the year. Um, God is awesome. Uh, we can do all He says because He will do all He says. And I've been challenging you for six months to be a radical disciple out in the world. It's the only reason you're still on the planet. There's no other reason for you to still be on the planet. There may be, let me put it this way, there may be some subordinate reasons that you are on the planet. But if you are a born-again Christian, you are here to make much of Jesus. That's just simply the truth. You can't read the Bible and not understand that's the only reason you've been left here. Yes, you have responsibilities that you discharge, but we discharge those responsibilities under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So my career is under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. My marriage is under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. My singleness is under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The entertainment that I partake of, it's under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our whole life is under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So I've been exhorting you to be a radical disciple. And we, we talked about it last week. Why can we be? Someone tell me, why can we be radical disciples of Jesus? What is our license to actually be a radical disciple of Jesus? Last week we talked about it. And I haven't posted the, the, the sermon. Or you would know if I had posted the sermon, right? But I haven't posted the sermon. I think I need to edit some stuff out of it. I got a little jazzed up. And I said, used a word or two I probably shouldn't have used. Um, so, I need to be a little more discriminating, a little more under control. But why can we be radical disciples? Because He's, a, he's radically committed to us. That was what we talked about. God is radically committed to His people. All you have to do is look at His life and look at His death. <laughs> he's committed to us. So, it's not unreasonable that He would ask us to be committed likewise to Him. It's, it's the synergy of the New Testament. God has given Himself away to us, and every true believer is in turn giving Himself away to Jesus. I, the only reason I went into that is because these songs got me... Karen did a great job picking out the songs, and I, I... Come live in me! Right? Come live in me! That's Christianity! God, come live in me! You know? And I will rise on eagle's wings. We talked about it last half of uh, Hebrews 11. Sometimes we get sawn in two, not very often. At least not most of us who live in the West. We live in Europe, we live in America. Uh, some of us may live in places, if we go back home and we're radical for Jesus, we, might, we probably won't get sawn in two, but something bad might happen to us. Isaiah was sawn in two. Isaiah is re referenced there in Hebrews 11. But ultimately, we will rise on eagle's wings. We will rise on eagle's wings. And if you know anything about the book of James, you realize that James is writing to a church who is under persecution, right? James is writing to a church that's in persecution. They've been dispersed. It's the dispersal of Acts 7 and Acts 8. I read one, one commentary. There may be 50,000 people who have left Jerusalem because of the persecution. That's the context of James. So I wanted to, to share that with you as we begin. Now, now I'm going to share something not interesting to you, but I found th there's a good story in it. It's not going to be interesting to you the first part, but 
I think maybe the personal part will be. I'm going to tell you about my sermon preparation routine. Sarah's excited. I can see it on her face. Now what I do the first part of the week is I pray and I think and I read and I just absorb information and I pray and on the text that, I, that, I, that I'm going to preach. And then I'm asking God for the introduction because I think the introduction is an important thing in the sermon. Most uh, preachers will agree with me on that. So I go to bed Thursday evening thinking about the introduction, praying and asking God for an introduction. And I usually wake up Friday morning and I have it. He gives it to me and I start writing. So I write on Friday and Saturday. So wasn't that fascinating? Aren't you so... Jeff is jazzed. He's jazzed. Okay, well, the first time I preached this text, James chapter 1, verses 2 to 12, Karen and I were in the midst of a trial. I could not find the introduction. So I, I get up, as I often do, from my desk, and I went to go bother Karen. When I'm, I'm being frustrated in my work, I go to bother Karen. This is what I do. And she's always there, and she allows me to bother her. And uh, except when she's, you know, out shopping, doing shopping ministries with the girls. But um, so I walk into the bedroom and she's sitting in this big chair. We have this big, comfortable chair in, in the bedroom. And I walk in there and she's crying. And she's got a book in her hand. And the book that's in her hand is one of the most important books that Karen and I own. Our, our relationship began around this book. Uh, it was the first class I taught that she sat in, or was it the second? Maybe it was the second. Um, but I walk in there and she's crying, and when I see this, I love God more than anything else look in her eye, which I often do, I knew she was my introduction. Because we were in the midst of a trial. This is March 2009. Um, so I walk in the bedroom, and Karen's reading... The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. If you've never read this book, you should read this book. He writes in Old English. Some of the words are difficult sometimes, but uh, I love to increase my vocabulary. Maybe you do too. But she's reading about the sovereignty and supremacy of God. And she's reading this paragraph. Let me read it to you. Pink writes, Here's the sure resting place for the believer. Our lives are neither the product of blind fate nor the result of capricious chance. But every detail of them was ordained from all eternity. And it is now ordered by the living and reigning God. Not a hair of our heads can be touched without His permission. And I've been saying this to you for six months. If you actually believe your God is God, you have no excuse not to live it radically in the world. And when the hard day comes, you can stand on God who is our rock because you know whatever has come into your life, it has passed through your Father's hand. It has passed through His hand. In fact, it's what Karen showed me. She, she showed me what she had written in the margin of Pink's book back in 1996. She had written, All that comes to me comes to me through my Father's 
hand. Some of you will know, some of you may not know. At that time, um, we were dealing with cancer. Karen had been diagnosed with cancer. And this was the emphasis in the women's retreat. We used to have women's retreat. We used to have a lot more women. And we used to have women's retreats. And that year, the emphasis was the attributes of God. And Karen had some questions about the, from, from, from some of the ladies. Well, how is that practical? How is that going to help me live? How does that help me be married? How does that help me raise my kids? How does it help me do my job? How are the attributes practical in real life? And Karen knows how to answer this kind of question, right? <laughs> she knows that the attributes of God, who God is, I'm assuming you know what attributes means. That's who God is. The biblical view of who God is, it comes in handy when the doctor tells you you have cancer. It comes in handy that day. Trust me. It comes in handy to know this is not bad luck. It comes in handy to know and believe that this has passed through my Father's hands and my God is doing something in it. It's extremely practical. And when the hard thing comes, you don't get blown over. You don't get blown over. I'm not saying it's easy. But you stand on the rock. Who's our rock? God is our rock. God is our rock. It really helps to know that God is good, God is faithful, God is attentive, God is loving, and God is a promise keeper when the doctor says you have cancer. I say it's essential to know these things if you're actually going to be any kind of Christian at all. Good day, hard day. It doesn't matter. You can't be a real Christian if you don't know these things are true and then begin to incarnate them in every sphere of your life. The psalmists were all over this. You've heard me say it several times already. It was in the psalm that I read to, to begin the service. The Hebrew word is selah. That's without the H. Selah, it means rock. The psalmist says, God is my rock. When, God say, when the doctor says you have cancer, God is my rock. When the spouse leaves you, God is my rock. When the children die, God is my rock. When the career ends, God is my rock. When I am slandered in public, God is my rock. Amen? It doesn't mean we don't cry, but God's our rock. We don't fall to the ground. We fall on God. We know it's come through His hand. And what somebody may mean for evil in our life, God has promised us that He is working for good. Now the sin may be there. Say the spouse abandons. What they mean for evil, God means for good. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. But we believe what the Bible says. Listen, beloved, here's what I want to say to you tonight. I want you to think biblically about God and about your circumstance. That's really the, the goal. Is that we would think biblically 
Whatever circumstance God brings into our lives, we would think biblically. biblically. Psalm 71, the psalmist calls God a rock of habitation. I've always loved this psalm. A rock of habitation. I live within this rock. Right? Nothing can assail me apart from what God has providentially allowed. And I'll even use a stronger word, not simply allowed, but, but designed for us. The trial is for us. God designed it for us. I know that in modern Christendom, this is not talked about very much. It's not even believed in many places. But if you actually read your Bible, you realize that God has purposed the trial for us. He's designed it for us. I love how John Piper talked about his cancer. He says, it was the gift that God gave me. Now, I know this is radical talk for most uh, people, even in the church these days. But to understand that God has gifted you with the hard thing. It's one thing you learn in the book of Job. Right? Job got God. When the trial is here, God is here. God doesn't abandon His... You know, you say, Jim, I'm in a hard, hard spot. Where's God? God is, God is here. God's coming. God always comes in the trial, beloved. He always comes. He always comes in the trial that I find so many Christians who are clueless about this. Let me say it this way. So many so-called Christians who are simply clueless about this. All they can do is look at the trial. That's all they can do. They're fixated on the trial. God says, look at me. I'm your rock. And Romans 8.28 is true today. Even when the doctor says you have cancer, Romans 8.28 is true. It's true. Even when the doctor gives you the news. So, Karen was my introduction. <laughs> She's still my introduction. Whenever I come to James chapter 1, verses 2 to 12, Karen is always my introduction. Granted, James is talking about trials that come through persecution, but I, it's not a giant leap to use this text. In any trial that we have, we are to look at God. So in the dread of cancer, the nausea of, and exhaustion of chemo, the burns and fatigue of radiation, God was Karen's Selah. And you know, you can fool a lot of people. I can fool you and you can fool me, but you cannot fool your spouse. And I watched her love God through this. And I watched her fall on her sailor. And it was an awesome thing for me to witness. God tells us in James chapter 1, verse 2, 3, and 4, consider it all joy when you encounter trials. I love what John Piper says. He says, the only way that's not stupid... <laughs> The only way that verse is not stupid is that God is good and God is sovereign. That's the only way that verse is not stupid. Count it joy! Why do we count it joy? How can we count trial joy? It's counterintuitive. It doesn't sound right, does it? It sounds wrong. You know, we studied the book Shattered Dreams a couple of semesters ago with the young adults. And Larry Crabb makes the point. 
That sometimes it's God's best gift. A shattered dream is God's best gift. Because we're too in love with the dream. You know? We're too enamored with the dream. We want the dream more than we want God. This is always blasphemous and it's always, to one degree or another, idolatry. I want to give testimony. Some of you have lived long enough and you've lived through serious trials. You understand that this is true. God was with us in this trial. He was our habitation. Sometimes I look back on it, and you'll have to ask Karen her view, but sometimes I look back on it, and it seems dreamlike. It just seems like we coasted through. I didn't. Co- I know she didn't, but I mean, it just seems like somehow we were carried through. I guess that's a better word. It's like I was being carried through. Uh, it seems like my feet didn't hit the ground very much. God says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. It made me think of Psalm 1611. In your presence, O Lord, is the fullness of joy. Now, why would I even think of that psalm? When I read James 1-2, count it all joy, why would I think of Psalm 1611? In your presence is fullness of joy. Why would those two, why would those two things coalesce in my mind? Any ideas? Yes, maybe I don't think logically, so it would be hard for you to understand where I'm going. David said, in the presence of God is fullness of joy. And then God says, in the trial, count it all joy. There's a bridge here. Do you see it? God. (laughs) The inference is God's coming to us. He's commanding joy in the trial. He's commanding it. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. It's what I said to you earlier. God comes to His people in the trial. You're not supposed to whine about the trial, beloved, if you're a Christian, if you're a born-again Christian. We don't... I'm not saying that we're impervious to the suffering. That's not what I'm saying. But what we do is we turn and we look at God. And we are encouraged that our God is so awesome, He can use something as dreadful as cancer for His good purpose in our life. It's really an amazing and worship-provoking thing. So, I sometimes counsel people and I say, listen, you know, we always like to say, well, God allowed this, God allowed that. And I, I have to say to you, in my view, that kind of language is far too passive as it relates to the people of God. I think it's too passive. God has purposed this for us. God has designed this for us. We are to receive it in the providence of God. And what did Job do? What did Job do? What was his first response? Someone tell me. He worshipped. And I'm going to have to ask you. Job had lost everything that day but his wife. He lost everything that day but his wife. And he worshipped God. Do you know God like that? Do you love God like that? Through His tears, through His grief, through His loss, through His mourning, 
through the devastation of it all, he worshiped God. This is an amazing, an amazing truth from Scripture. You guys know what God says. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6, he says, These trials are necessary. Did you know that your trials are necessary? I know I hear many Christians, they they think something's gone wrong in their life. A trial has come, and I, I, I say, No, you're right on, you're, you're right on target. It's supposed to come. God says they're necessary. The trial is necessary for you. As one theologian said, God is destroying your addictions and your adulteries in the trial. He's going to make you turn from your addictions and adulteries and you're going to have to look at Him and you're going to have to fall more in love with Him and you're going to put down some things, things that really don't matter. God's going to get your attention. And beloved, this is a great gift from God. It's a great mercy and a great blessing and a great grace from God. He loves you this much. He's not going to let you waste your life on trivial things. He will get your attention. He will get your attention. You claim to be His. He'll get your attention. Why can the Christian count it all joy when it's hard? It's because God's coming to us. And I want you to notice as we quickly go through the text that really 2 through 11, it's a roadmap to, chapter, it's a roadmap to verse 12. Let me read verse 12 to you again. Look at this. It's a roadmap to verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved... He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. God's going to bring us through the trial 2 through 11 up to verse 12. So, what do we learn here about the trial? Verses 2 through 4. It's a testing of what? Someone tell me. It's a testing of our faith and it produces endurance. And endurance has its perfect effect that we may become perfect and complete. What does that mean? Sinless? No. Mature. We know how to deal and we know how to we know what to do in a trial. <laughs> We're not like a pagan in a crisis. We fall on God. We fall on God. We think deep thoughts about God in the midst of the trial. So those of you who have sat under Karen, and uh, you know that she teaches about an awesome, sovereign, good, and promise-keeping God. Guess what? When the doctor says you have cancer, that's the God she loves. That's the God she worships. And that's the God she rests in. She didn't fall away when the hard thing came. She fell on God. I love here this, this Greek word. The Greek word translated consider. It means to give authority over. It means to give your joy or the joy that God gives authority over the trial. How easily do you give up your joy? I mean... Right? How easily do you give up your joy? Well, the alarm went off late and I'm late for work. Or the 
the tire went flat, or the kids are misbehaving, or I, you know, did poorly on the exam at the university. How easy do you give up your joy? Let your joy, the joy that you have in Christ, rule over your trials and everything else in life. And we do that by really taking the long view. I've got to tell you, 60 has been awesome for me. It's been great. It's, I hope you don't have to wait till you're 60 to feel what I feel. I feel like I'm so close to home now. Really, that's true for all of us. But I have to tell you, I'm, I'm keenly aware. I have a few more good years. God willing. I mean, I could die on the way home tonight, right? But statistically, God willing, I have a few more good years. I'm so jazzed about being pour, pouring myself out for a few more years for the glory of Jesus. Because I know nothing else ultimately, ultimately, and again, I understand we have subordinate responsibilities. But even those responsibilities, you should make much of Jesus in them. But I want to make much of Jesus for the few remaining years that, that I have. So the unbeliever, all they can do is look at the trial. All they can do is fixate on it. All they can do is, is moan about it. All they can do is, is generate tons of anxiety about it. That's all they can do. All they can do is look at it and worry about it and think about it and feel sorry for themselves about it. That's all they can do. That's all they do. They look at it. And it rules their life. God says, my people are not like that. My people look at me. Believers look at me. Believers look through the trial. We don't look at it. We look through it. Of course we have to live it. But we look through it. We look at God. We look at heaven. We look at the new heaven and the new earth. We look at all of His promises that He's made to us. That's what we look at. When we're thinking rightly, I understand. Even as a Christian, we, we're prone to feel sorry for ourselves. I get that. I'm not immune to that. It's our natural inclination. I want to feel sorry for myself. This is unjust. Well, when you've... <laughs> this is not fair. Well, when, we've, when we're thinking rightly about the Bible, we understand that if you're not in hell, you have been the beneficiary of much grace. So it's not really accurate for the believer to be talking about what's fair. I love how the message paraphrases verse 2. He says... Peterson says, consider it a sheer gift when the challenge comes to you. Don't you love that? I tell you this, I've told you this for years, those of you who've been around. You're not supposed to be surprised when the trial comes. What are you supposed to be? Chenelo? Ready. You're supposed to know it's coming. You don't exactly know what it is. It's coming. The trial is coming. God says it's necessary for you. I am... I am always amazed. People who call themselves Christians, it hits the fan and they're clueless. I... things are going to hit the fan. They will hit the fan. You're supposed to be ready. God is your rock. 
God is your Selah. You're supposed to be ready. You fall on God. We fall on God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, These momentary light afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. We're looking through the trial. We're thinking forward. We are taking the long view. God says, My children do not fixate on the trial. They look at Me. And we know it, don't we? <laughs> we know when we have to cry. What do we know when we have to cry? What do we know when we have to cry what? That we will rejoice, right? Now the believer has no such hope. I mean, pardon me, the unbeliever has no such hope. We have the hope that, yes, when we cry, we know we will rejoice. It's not we hope we will. We know we will. We will get the victory. We will come through. Because our God is God. Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may last for the night, but the shout of joy will come in the morning. So the doctor says you have cancer. You have all the normal feelings that an unbeliever will have initially. They're welling up in you. It comes. It just naturally comes. You have, the, you have the normal response. But what the real Christian does, the biblically literate Christian, what they will do is have an abnormal response. Ultimately, they'll have the abnormal response. Which is, what are you doing, God? What is this about? We don't simply lock onto the cancer. We turn... And we lock on to God. When the bad news comes, we're to let our abnormal reaction rule over the normal reaction. When the cancer comes, and that's a metaphor for any trial you may have, God expects us to think biblically. You might ask yourself, or you might ask the Lord, God, how will you disclose yourself to me in a new way? What will I learn new about you in this valley? How will you change me forever? How will you enlarge my view of who you are? How, Lord, do you mean to glorify yourself in this? How do you mean to bless me and reward me in this? How will my response in this trial enhance not only my temporal life, but my eternal life? And oh yeah, this is a pretty important one. How will you use this trial to convert the unbelievers around me? I have cancer. I praise God. The unbelievers see it. My children see it. My in-laws see it. My colleagues see it. My neighbors see it. My unconverted church-going friends see it. He really believes! He really believes! 
He doesn't understand, but he believes that God is good and God is sovereign. Romans 8.28 is true. Whether I live, whether I die, God is God, God is good, God is my Creator, God is my Redeemer, God is my reward. You know, this whole prosperity stupidity, there's another word I shouldn't use in the pulpit, that's so engulfed much of the Western church. Um... It exalts the blessing over the one who blesses. And you got so many people walking around calling themselves Christians who are really, what they really want is a good deal. Just, God, I want you to bless what I'm doing. I want a good deal from you, God. That's what I want. I want a good deal. I want a blessing. Do you know, beloved, it's the one reason we can count it all joy because we understand in the trial we get God. You know, this is a good deal for us. The trial's a good deal. I know we don't think this way. Naturally, this is a, an abnormal biblical thought process. I love what American theologian David Paulison says about the Christian life. I don't want you to ever forget this. He says, and you already know this, he says, you are 100% certain to suffer. And Christ is 100% certain to meet you there. Don't you love that? <laughs> you know, an unbeliever, it's just all wasted pain. It's all wasted pain. <laughs> you don't have one tear to spare. I, I think I shared this with you several weeks ago. You don't have a pain to spare. God's in every one. God's changing you in every pain. God's revealing Himself to you in a new way in every trial. These trials are necessary for us, beloved. They are necessary. Quickly, verses 5-7. through seven. You heard the text read. God says, if you lack wisdom about, you know, about what I'm doing, he sa what does He say there? He what does He say? He says, ask Me. Do you lack wisdom? Ask Me. It's another command. Ask me. Do you lack wisdom about what, what I'm doing in your life? Ask me about it. You know, I run into folks so many times, they do everything but ask God. You know? It's like they've done everything but ask God. When Karen and I went through the cancer, we never asked God for an accounting. God doesn't give an accounting. He doesn't explain Himself. He simply does what He does. Um, you may remember Job got to the place where he was asking for an accounting. God did not give him one. God simply revealed Himself to Job. So what does the Bible say about wisdom? Where does wisdom come from? It comes from the fear of the Lord. I love Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding takes me back to Karen. Do you understand? It was the knowledge of the Holy One. It was the knowledge of the Holy One. It's why I go into the bedroom and she's weeping, not about the cancer. She's weeping about the faithfulness of her God. That's why she's always my introduction <laughs> in this chapter. Yeah, it's an awesome thing. 
the knowledge of the Holy One. The knowledge of the Holy One. It's why you need to know who God says He is in the Bible. A study of His attributes. A study of who He is. A knowledge of the Holy One will bring you through every trial. You can't get it from a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a therapist or a horoscope. You only get it from God Himself through His revealed Word, the 66 books of the Bible. I love what John MacArthur, American preacher, says here. He says, God puts us in the trial to elevate our dependence upon Him. Don't you love that? It's like a promotion. I know we don't think this way, naturally, but biblically it's like a promotion. God says, you like wisdom? Ask me. And He says, I'll give generously without reproach. What does it mean, generously? God is open-handed. He's liberal. He's big-hearted. Without reproach. He doesn't say, Richard, you're a loser. Why are you asking me about this again? He doesn't say that. What does the text say? He gives without reproach, without rebuke, without scolding, without reprimand, without reproof. But he says you must ask in faith. Let not a man that is doubting expect that he would receive anything from the Lord. If you don't have the wisdom to navigate the trials in your life, beloved, ask God. Just ask God. It's what the text says. You have a trial? Ask God about it. Wait for Him to answer. He's a faithful God. Beloved, if you don't have the wisdom to navigate the trials in your life, it's not God's fault. It's your fault. It's... it's, You're not talking to Him and you're not listening to Him. So we must ask in faith. Karen and I like to go to the sea. The waves crash. We we just like to listen to them come and they come in. You you sit there and you're watching them. One time just for fun, I thought I would count them. And after a while, you you can't count anymore. And and they just keep coming in. They keep coming in. They keep coming in. And you realize it's just the same water all day. They never make any progress. They're They're like the doubting man here. It's the same water. It's going over and over. It's like a big circle all day long at the sea to watch the waves come in. It made me think of John Bunyan's double-minded man in Pilgrim's Progress. He's called Mr. Facing Both Ways. This is, what, this is what James is talking about here. This is what God's talking about. Don't come to me doubting. Come to me in faith and I'll walk you through the trial. I'll walk you through it. God says, I'll walk you through it. You may not have uh, full understanding. Uh, you may never have full understanding. But God says, I'll walk my people through it. Verses 9, and 11, verses 9, 10, and 11 here. What is the context here? How does this actually fit the context? Actually, simply what God is saying here. Obviously, poverty can be a trial, but wealth can be a trial, right? How is wealth a trial? I, I heard Tim Keller. I was listening to Tim Keller preach on this this week. It's because you think you're something, man. If you're wealthy, you think you're something. You think you're smart. You think you made it happen. You think you're a little superior. You probably don't need God that much anymore because you've got a huge bank account. It'll last you the rest of your life. 
Eat, drink, and be merry. Wealth is a serious trial, beloved. Don't ever envy a rich man. It is a snare and a trial. And if you get rich, what does the Christian do who gets rich? He gives it away. And listen, we're all rich to one degree or another. You look at the world statistics. If you make much over 36,000 US dollars a year, you make more than 80% of the world. And I understand cost of living in various places. I get that. My point is, this is a snare that I think the West is in. Our wealth. So what's God saying to us here? I think the Lord is saying, whether you're rich or poor, have the mind of Christ. Poor man, be heavenly minded. Be a good steward of your poverty. Rich man, be heavenly minded. Be a good steward of your wealth. And that brings us to verse 12. Blessed is the man who, preserves, who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is the Jim Albright paraphrase. Happy is the man who stays on God in the storm. Happy is the man who stays on God in the storm. He stands on his sailor. He's not blown over. He's not blown away. He stands on the rock. He inhabits the vast granite fortress of God. He lives by the knowledge of the Holy One. He doesn't tremble and wring his hands. He lives by the knowledge of the Holy One. My God is God. My, God's over, my God is God over cancer. And He'll either heal me or He won't. That's His business. Life is His business. Death is His business. My business is to worship Him in the midst of it. Don't you hate how trivial Christianity has become in the West? I hate it. I hate it. God is a genie. I stroke Him just right. I get the jackpot. He blesses me with health, wealth, and prosperity. I hate it! It's a false gospel. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Satan loves the prosperity gospel because he knows if you buy into it, the first time you crash, you're going to drop it like a hot potato. It's a false gospel. It's a false gospel. It's taking millions to hell. God says, Cursed is the man who preaches any gospel other than the one I gave Paul. <laughs> And it is another Gospel. Beloved, we need to think rightly about blessing and trial. And I'm going to close with a great illustration for you and I'm done. There's a 17th century Scottish minister named Samuel Rutherford who was jailed for preaching the truth. And he likened temple things which we sometimes love more than God to lamps, okay? And in order for us to experience true joy, sometimes God blows out those lamps. Let me just read his, what he writes here. 
Samuel Rutherford says, If God had told me some time ago that He was about to make me as happy as I could be in this world, and then told me that He should begin by removing me from all my usual sources of enjoyment, that is, being shackled in a prison cell, I should have thought it a very strange mode of accomplishing His purpose. And yet, how is His wisdom manifest even in this? For if you should see a man shut up in a closed room, and he's, he's saying this is how most men live. If you should see a man shut up in a closed room, idolizing a set of lamps, and rejoicing in them, and in their light, and you wish to make him truly happy, you would begin by blowing out all of his lamps and then throwing open the shutters of heaven to let the true light of God come in. Do you understand the point? What are you idolizing, beloved? What lamp are you uh, idolizing? God's going to blow it out. If you have an idol, He's going to blow it out. He is going to blow it out. Why? Because He loves you. He's not going to let you waste your life on an idol. He's not going to let you waste your life on an idol. He's going to show Himself to you. He's going to give Himself to you. This is Christianity. So listen, when the, when, when, when the wind blows out the lamp, don't curse the wind. Don't curse the trial. Count it all joy. God is coming to you. I've seen this lived out in my wife's life. And it's an awesome thing. God says through His servant James, verse 12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to be ready. We don't want to act like pagans in a crisis. We don't want to endlessly feel sorry for ourselves and feel like a victim. We, won't, we don't want to judge the things in our life by fairness. Lord, we want to think biblically. We want to bring everything to the knowledge of the Holy One. We judge everything by the knowledge of the Holy One. We don't let our circumstance dictate our view of God. We let You dictate our view of circumstance. We can count it all joy no matter what comes because You're at work. Romans 8.28 is true every day. It's true every single nanosecond of every single day, of every single week, of every single month, of every single year. It's true. Oh God, I pray that we would become a mighty people. I pray that we would not be blown away by the trial, but we would be ready for the trial. Transform us, we pray, Lord, that we would learn to think biblically about all that You bring into our lives. Lord, that we could to, to some degree be like Job and understand that whatever comes, we worship. You're great and awesome and mighty and sovereign and saving God whatever comes. It, 
Circumstance doesn't change who you are. It changes who I am. The hard thing changes me. It burns off the dross. It breaks my love affair with my worldly addictions and adulteries. It helps me to see you and to love you. Thank you for this text, Father. Thank you that we can be fearless and bold and courageous in the face of trial. We understand what you've told us. It is necessary for our sanctification. We understand. Lord, may we be a good witness in the midst. May you convert many around us as they watch us give testimony, as they watch us love You in the hard thing. Lord, what freedom, what license, what joy. We give all praise, glory, and honor to the matchless name of Jesus.